Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, I head to Pier 8 in Central, along to an area outside the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, where conservator Paul Harrison works on restoring some of the items that are bought by the museum or given in donations. Today, he tells me about a 1950s boat, a Song Dynasty granite anchor, and a cannonade from the 1820s found on the seabed off Saikung. There are three items here at the moment. One we just finished working on is a 1950s yacht, which we believe is the oldest yacht in Hong Kong. It's probably never going in the water again and will go on display to the public soon. It was made by the Choi Lee Company in Aberdeen. It's called My Bell and we got it from the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club. It was sitting outside there, and with the redevelopments you've probably all seen with the widening of the roads, etc. They said, we want to get rid of this, are you interested? So we got some money nicely donated by Mr Miller from DFS. Duty-free shoppers. Mr Miller kindly paid for its conservation work. So we got the guy who we think he says he made it in the 1950s. He's in his mid-80s and he came and conserved it with his assistant. Yeah, this is uh, Mr Fan, who I've got the full name of at home. But Mr Fan, if it's... uh, the man I think it is, he's a fifth generation in uh, Stanley um, and he's definitely an interview that I must get over the next uh, few months. Mr Fan is, as I say, fifth generation of making and preserving junks and sampans and uh, worked on some boats of a mutual friend of ours, Graham Large. Now this is lovely, my bell, a yacht that was made, as you say, in the 1950s. I've got to polish up the plaque a bit, I think it says 52 or 53. And who would have owned it initially, do you know? Uh, I don't know yet, I'm I'm the museum's conservator, so if you think of all the curators in the museum, I'm like the doctor. My job is just to look after the museum artefacts, I work at the Maritime Museum part-time, just Mondays and Tuesdays, the rest of the time I'm running my own uh, antiques conservation company. Yeah, Phoenix Conservation. So you work here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. And do you find that you have all sorts of items that you suddenly get presented with? Yes, well, I've got three very different objects around me here. So on my right, we have this wooden 1950s yacht. And then on my left, immediate left, there's a stone anchor from the Song Dynasty. And then beyond that, uh, a British cannon from the early 19th century. (laughs) So not a dull job then? Yes, well I get paid to do my hobby. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been talking about the yacht, that's the most modern thing here. So uh, tell me about the anchor. Okay, so the anchor is made of stone. It's made of granite and it's from the Song Dynasty. For European types that's early medieval. If you've been to the Nanhai Number no. 1, which is an amazing boat, sort of halfway to Hainan Island, near the coast, of course, where they've got a similar one, but much bigger. Um, ours is a metre and a half long. So as it's been in the sea for about 700 years, it got covered in shells. So I'm chipping the shells off. I've chipped it off the uh, one half, and I've got to get the curator's permission to, um, to see how they want it to look on display. They might want it completely shell-free, or they might want to leave some shells on to give some visual effect cause, to show that it's been under the water. So this is a, an anchor from the Song Dynasty, so it's just like, I mean, it's not an anchor um, as you would see with 
Um, I mean, how would you describe a modern anchor? Well, have we all seen modern anchors because they're on the Star Ferry just behind me and they're on T-shirts and everything. But this is completely different. This is just a, a single tapering at both ends lump of granite, a long rectangle, but it's tapering. You might wonder where it's tapering, but to stick my fingers in the water makes it easy to lift up because um, I can't um, lift it up at the middle. I need someone else to completely lift it. Um, but it's very, it's a good sh shape to get your fingers under to lift it up. So when it was used on a Song Dynasty ship, they would have actually, what, put a rope round the end? Well, we believe there's a wooden thing down the middle, because if we come to the middle here, you can see that there's a, a band where it's down by about three or four millimetres. I can imagine a piece of wood there and that being the rest of the anchor to make it more like an anchor that we know, a modern iron one, and this is just one component and the rest would have been made of wood. So what happens then here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum with all these odd bod items that come in? Are some donated, some that the actual Maritime Museum purchase? Yes, we beg, steal or borrow whatever artefacts that we are given or are interested in to increase the collection to show to the world. I'm talking with Paul Harrison, conservator here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. And Paul also has his own conservation firm, Phoenix Conservation. You've got such a mishmash here. You've got this, as you say, boat uh, dating back to 1952, a Song Dynasty anchor made out of granite about a metre long. And, and as I say, in an, an entirely different shape from one that I've seen. It's being kept in a sort of coffin structure here with seawater. No, it's not seawater. Because it's been in um, the sea for about 700 years, I'm worried that salt has got into it. Now, granite's a pretty impermeable rock, but there, I didn't know how cracked it would be, and I want all the sea salt to come out. So it's currently soaking in fresh water, not seawater, to get the um, seawater salt out. Now, where does it come from originally? I mean, who, who, who sort of turned up at the door with a Song Dynasty anchor? Well, um, there's a body called the Hong Kong Underwater Heritage Group that I'm a member of, and they were doing a marine archaeology project in the Saikong area, and swimming around in the area, they saw this. So we contacted the Antiquities and Monuments Office, who gave us a licence to excavate the area. Unfortunately, we didn't find any objects associated with this and we got permission to lift this and to bring it to the museum. So with the Hong Kong Underwater Heritage Group, we've had a previous uh, programme here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Coral where Dr David Baker was talking uh, from the Swire Institute of Marine Science was also talking about how the Underwater Heritage Group does find these items and they might be, you know, they might be researching coral and live animals at the time and um, then they also come across these items um, so they sort of work together but um, you know where, when you found when they found this in Saikung I mean was it covered in silt? No um, the area it was is pretty rocky um, I can dive but I didn't dive on this site I was on the boat um, um, crossing every finger I had touching every piece of wood as it was lifted in the iron frame which is just next to it. Because how much does it weigh? I think it's about 100 kilograms or something Oh so yeah it's quite a weight to get up so you lifted it up with this iron crane 
onto the onto the boat. But around there, you know, when you're actually saying, right, okay, we're going to take this area and we're going to try and see if there are other items, what do you do? Just sort of mark it on a grid almost? Yes, the archaeologists swim in the area. The group is headed by an Australian called Bill Jeffries, who's currently at the American island of Guam University teaching archaeology there. And he then he comes here in his um, holidays to do archaeology projects. So is, is Hong Kong particularly rich in marine archaeology? Well, that's something we're working on because there are only two licensed marine archaeologists in Hong Kong. So we've been looking at a yacht from 1952, a granite anchor from the Song Dynasty. Now, uh, you said it was early medieval for the Europeans, but um, can you give us a century? They're still working on that. It will be hard to do because the problem we've got is we've got nothing else to associate it with. So all that we know is around the Song Dynasty there were anchors like this. Ah, I see. Um, We have no other reference for it and that's why it would be nice to have some other finds associated with it if we found some pots then we could say oh that pot's from 1300 so this might be from a time around that but because we have no associated uh, finds it's difficult to make a story all we know is stone anchor in the water three meters depth Now, you've been a few times on the programme, Paul, uh, talking uh, many years ago about cannons um, and then more recently about the Armenian graves where you had a project up at the Hong Kong Cemetery. So you are dealing with the wood, the stone, uh, the metal. Um, Do you then get a sort of detective thrill about finding out about how this project then proceeds once you get the archaeologists on board or the uh, other uh, curators in order to sort of flesh out the history or are you just concerned with the materials and how to conserve them? Well, my main concern is the, um, the object and the, uh, also the technology because that's involved with how I conserve it. But um, we're also interested in the object as a whole because I spend so long with an artefact, I'd love to know more about it. So there we've got the Sung Dynasty anchor made out of granite about one metre long and it, as I say it widens out in the middle and at the moment it's in a box, a wooden box of um, fresh water in order to try and extract the salt in the stone. In terms of what kind of ship it came from, would they have all had anchors similar at that time? I I find it difficult to lift by myself so it's going to need to, to be fairly big boat. It needs two people just to handle the stone part, maybe three if you go back to the in the past with smaller people on a ship and then there's the rest of the anchors weight and bulk to compensate for so it's going to need several people to lift it up and the space as well to manhandle such a big anchor i don't know if there's any formulas about size of anchor and size of ship then over here we've got a cannon which is a kind of a brown black color i mean that's highly recognizable as a cannon uh, it's about what would you say in comparison to if the uh, sung dynasty anchor is about a meter long that's what nearly the, two the isn't it a meter and a half this oh. is uh, getting close to two this is two meters long and that must weigh a ton yes it's a thousand kilograms <laughs> <laughs> how on earth did you get it here and where did you find it 
Well, uh, this was reported to us by uh, a marine diver called Mr. Mann, and he was diving and saw two cannons uh, lying on the seabed, so he reported it to the Hong Kong Underwater Heritage Group, and then we uh, investigated it, reported it to the Antiquities and Monuments Office, and they gave us a licence to lift it. So on the same weekend that we lifted the anchor, we also lifted this from nearby, also in Sai Kong. Is there not a risk, though, if you lift one item out of an environment that that, that, that ruins the integrity of what else is around it? Well, we, uh, as part of the project, we have to dive in the area to see if there are any associated fines. We don't know the backstory of this, so the associated fines would tell us if there was a, a whole shipwreck there, we could, ah, there's been a shipwreck, and trace it with that, or... Is it before 1950s, fishing boats used to carry cannons on them to protect themselves from the pirates. Maybe they'd turn to piracy sometimes themselves uh, if the fishing fleet was low. In the 1940s, 50s, marine police told uh, the Hong Kong fishermen they could no longer carry cannons anymore. So several of them threw them overboard. So that's extraordinary. So in the 1920s or 30s, I mean, I have seen photos of it, um, that you would have fishing boats with a whole array of cannons on board. Yes. We used to have um, a model uh, in the Maritime Museum based on... um, There was a white Russian explorer called Aleko Lilius who wrote a book, I Sailed with Chinese Pirates. And what he did was in the 1920s or 30s, he went to Macau, befriended the pirate fleet that was there and um, sailed with them to see them which is very brave but he was specialised in doing crazy things like that (laughs) and one of his photographs we had reproduced as a model upstairs. Slowly the brown sails of our ship crept up while the barefooted crew scurried back and forth upon the decks. Finally the junk was clear to heave way. On a nearby junk, a Taoist priest in demon-red robes kowtowed and burned firecrackers to his special deity in order to drive away the evil spirits, all this for a few cents silver. I was dazed. It was difficult to believe my luck. At last, I was actually tramping the deck of an honest-to-goodness pirate ship. Our junk lay hidden among many other similar craft. It would have been impossible to pick it out from the shore, and I wondered how the captain would maneuver us out from such a crowded jumble of boats. But I did not remain in ignorance long. Members of the crew lowered a dinghy, rowed out some distance, and dropped an anchor. Then the dinghy returned, and all hands hauled upon the anchor line until the junk began to move slowly forward. Then the maneuver was repeated until we had worked ourselves out into the open water. Hardly a sound was to be heard on board, only the shuffling feet of the crew. There was nothing for me to do but climb up on the poop deck and make myself as inconspicuous as possible. I felt in the mood to do just that, too. A white man, an intruder, searching for unusual copy. What right, after all, had I to pry into their secrets? I wasn't a Secret Service man or a government employee. When I think about the Marine Police as well, that would have been hugely challenging if you've got an array of cannons on a, on a ship. Well, the Chinese fishermen were probably only carrying one cannon. 
uh, at the front mounted because they're big things and need a, quite a bit of crew to man them. Literally, with these kind of cannons, if they're, if they're still carrying them in the 2030s, I mean, when did they date back to? Well, this one dates from... Uh, we're still working on the exact date is sort of 1820s, 1830s and who would it, it would have been a Chinese cannon? this is a British one it's got a crown on and it's got three letters that we're trying to work out what the three letters stand for they are E-L-C Echo Lima Charlie ok, so anybody who's a cannon expert out there, cannon British from around 1820 um, so that would have been what? No, is that Napoleonic? Well, this is after Napoleon. Napoleonic finished in 1815. So, uh, this cannons of this time uh, were in use for about 20 years with the Royal Navies, but with a merchant fleet, they might keep it for longer because they wouldn't be used so often. This cannon could have come to China from from Britain on on a merchant vessel. That, that's correct. To correct all what we've been saying, it's not actually a cannon. It's more likely to be. It's more proper to call it a carronade. A carronade. Or a cannonade. A cannonade. Yes. Um, if we look at the front of the ca- carronade, cannonade, <laughs> <laughs> it goes in, whereas most cannon- cannons will flare out. I'm demonstrating, which doesn't come out very well on the radio, but um, it, a cannon flares out. Yes, Paul, Paul's making a flaring motion with his hands. Whereas this one comes in. So, yes, so if you, now, for for correct archaeological terminology, with our conservator here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, so if you see a cannon, it flares out. If you see a cannonade, it tapers. Yes. The other problem is a carronade is squatter. And the, but this is a later carronade, so they're called cannonades. Okay, so the later version, it's a cannonade, which an earlier version would have been a carronade, and it's got these letters ELC and the crown. So that should be, I would imagine, very trackable. Yes. The problem was in the past there were so many cannon companies. We googled ELC and we had one reference come up, and that was to the Mountie. The Bounty also had an ELC cannon. According to the, this reference. So of course, you had the mutineers on the bounty who ended up where? Pitcairn Island. We've got uh, a cannon here, two and a half metres, and it's a thousand kilograms. So what metal is it made of? This is made of cast iron. So how it would have been made is it would have been cast as a solid block and then it would have been bored out from the centre because you don't cast the hole in, or the earlier cannons did, but then you don't cast the hole in because you can be slightly out. But if you imagine that it's slightly out of alignment on the inside um, as you cast it, you'll have points of weakness because it'll be much thinner on the inside on one side. And also, it, you'll point straight ahead, but you're actually pointing in a slightly different direction. So to improve the accuracy, in about the 1780s, Britain decided to bore out the inside of cannons, so they were ground out on the inside. What an enormous amount of work. I mean, for starters, just to cast this huge thing, you'd have then had it on wheels? Yes. Um, some of them have a slight... Particularly the carronades... From the earlier time. ...were put on uh, sliders. If you Google images them, you'll see them on a trolley. And the other ones would be on wheels. The other name for this sort of cannon is a smasher. <laughs> because if you imagine the normal cannons fire a cannonball and it hits one side of the ship, 
goes through, takes off a limb or two, destroys some of the inside of the ship, and then the power is so strong it will come out the other side of the ship. Whereas this one, it doesn't fire as far because it fires at a lower velocity. And you might think, why do you want to do that? The thing is that when the cannonball hits this, it causes a lots of splinters to form on the inside of the ship so that the crew of the opposing ship are hit by thousands of wood splinters. I'm not talking the tiny things that you get under your finger. I'm talking about big, nasty pieces of wood. Awful. It's like the sort of barrel bomb equivalent of its time, isn't yes. it? If we come down to the cascable end, that's the closed end at the end, because all the gunpowder and the cannonball had to be loaded in from the far end to here. Here, where the touching hole would have been, there'd be a groove here. And what you do is put gunpowder along that line and light it, stand back, and while the gunpowder burns along here to go in the hole. And then when the explosion happens, so it's, the trolley doesn't run over your foot. This would be firing the cannonball to smash on the sides to cause all the splinters. But um, a cannon could fire all sorts of things. So they had um, grape shot, which is like a, a bunch of grapes, and that each one of those is a little bullet, and that could that's used to clearing the decks before you charge over. It can fire bar shot, which is to imagine an apple, cut it in half and then put a bar in between it and the bar flies open and that's used to take away all the ropes. If you see the models of these ships or pictures or you may see the Soland Day which was alongside here recently. Oh, so that was a tall ship? There was a tall ship that was just along here for a couple of months. It's got so many ropes on it. So if you fire a bar shot or a chain shot, which is similar with a chain across, that'll take out a lot of the ropes, so make the ship less uh, handleable. Because if you think about all the labour that's gone into one of these ships, it would be a good idea to capture it rather than to wreck it. So if you want to capture rather than wreck, fire these at it, make the ship uncontrollable, then you can board it. It's amazing, isn't it? All the science that goes into destruction. Um, but I, mean, I remember watching Pirates of the Caribbean and towards the end when they were running out of ordnance, they were shoving in um, all sorts of metal cutlery. So that seemed to work too. Yes. <laughs> um, they could fire nails as well. Dreadful, the sort of in injuries. And uh, imagine this uh, on the high sea as well. You know, it's not as if everybody could go back into port. So this is a cannonade dating back to around 1820. It's about two and a half metres long and a thousand kilos in a wooden box here at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum here on Pier 8 where I'm talking to conservator Paul Harrison. So remind me, this was found... This was found by a marine diver called Mr Mann and he kindly reported it to the Hong Kong Underwater Heritage Group. Then we investigated it there is actually another one still in the sea, but we used up all our air lifting this because the divers had to take a, down a hammer and chisel and because it had welded with rust itself to the bottom of the seabed. And the other cannon was underneath this. And then they lift it by very uh, big balloons that they fill with their air. So they had used up all their air to lift this one. So, so there's another one still down there. there. A, a smaller one. 
So were you going to go back and fetch that one? Yes, we've put in the licence to the MO to say, can we lift that? In terms of how you operate when you're working on several items at the same time, do you, you know, do you have a set timetable or it just takes as long as it takes? It takes as long as it takes. I don't know which method I'll use in, with this at the moment. At the moment I'm just finishing off the box. Then it will be soaked in a chemical because, because it's been in the water for maybe 200 years. There will be lots of chlorine inside the metal. I actually did my BSc thesis on the removal of chlorine from archaeological ironwork because it can get up to all sorts of mischief and break the object up. Why would there be chlorine? from the sea, from the sodium chloride in the sea is attracted to iron that's deteriorating and um, it forms a very nasty corrosion product called beta-FeOOH iron oxyhydroxide, mineral name acaganiite Oh, aren't you clever? <laughs> this is my BSc thesis, so <laughs> I have to be clever on that, this is my party piece <laughs> So this uh, forms in the m- middle of the iron object and because it's so undense it splits and rips the uh, uh, objects apart so a problem that museums have with their archaeological iron work is this chlorine because it can it destroys the collection over time so what can you do you can now soak it in a modern chemical also i haven't decided which one yet if i put it in an alkali solution the iron won't rust anymore so what will happen is the chlorine will slowly come out of the ironwork. Note the key word, slowly. Um, the, another, so this process can take months? Well, years, if I do that one. Another method is to seal the cannon in the solution with a roof and have a chemical in there that will eat all the oxygen. And so then the chlorine will slowly permeate. So that's another slow method. But the quick method is like electrolysis, where I put... A two molybdenum stabilized stainless steel <laughs> um, el- uh, electrodes in there and connect up a direct current, and that's a lot quicker because oh, right. I'm pulling using electricity to pull the chlorine out of the ironwork. I'm still discussing it with the curators, but uh, ideally would l- I would like to have this on display like this. And I think that's also useful if it is possible to then show people the whole conservation process in a way it stops us being the anonymous curator because i see the before and afters of the museum objects the wooden boat came in fairly rotten in areas and now it's a beautiful piece that you could think could sail this afternoon the stone anchor came in covered in with, with shells and you couldn't see really what the stone looked like now when i've cleaned it up you've got the elegant lines and the working down the middle so it's a very satisfying job. Yes, and the cannon here, we didn't have the letters or the crown before, and you can see by the some rust left how thick the rust was, and there's a mound over there of the rust that I've removed, and that was nice um, carving it down. I've left a bit on because we're waiting to have that x-rayed. That might be a firing mechanism. It could be that there's a flint mechanism to make a spark to light the gunpowder. When these items come into you, um, you know, several hundred years old, do you actually think about the, the men and women who might have been using them? Yes. When I was in Scotland, I was working for a medieval archaeology unit and I had a lot of shoes that came in and the bottoms of the shoes, you'd see how the shoes were worn. So that was really close to 
information about these people. You could see that some walked more on their right, more on their left, how they... Out of leather? Yes, leather shoes and the wear patterns, because shoes were expensive then, and you could see how the person wore each shoe. Um, So it was a very personal thing. This may be the only thing surviving of that whole person's life. We don't know their name, we don't know their profession, their kids, er anything, but we do know how they walked. Absolutely fascinating, yes. But when I do see a cannon like that, you know, you can really think about these poor men who you would have had to get that up on the on the wheels and, uh, well, make it in the first place and fire it up. We're using, for now, very old-fashioned methods and then just the dangers involved, and particularly when you can find it on a ship. Mm. The, the, the space that they would have had to fire these would have been very enclosed and they, the gunpowder would burn and make acrid smell you didn't know whether your next moment would be your last or whether you'd be horribly mutilated. I wouldn't like to be treated by a surgeon on a ship, especially when he's got lots of other people to treat after the battle, because some of the wounds that these would have inflicted would have been really nasty, and it would have been hot and sweaty and very noisy, so I wouldn't have liked to have been there. You prefer your job? Yes, certainly. Much safer. (laughs) My thanks to Paul Harrison of Phoenix Conservation. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.